And now I am very pleased to introduce one of the Canadian Club's most popular and much-anticipated traditions, our 36th annual Outlook Lunch. In partnership with the National Post and together sponsored by Ernst & Young and Scotiabank, we can't think of a better way to start the new year than to reflect on what, what lies ahead for our economy, the markets, and politics. Now, there are no crystal balls here today, or at least that I've seen, uh, but what we do have are some of the country's most intriguing, thought-provoking, and insightful columnists. And of course, we have invited an economist for good measure and to keep us all honest. 2012 was a year full of surprises, uneven global economic growth, austerity measures, and a fiscal cliffhanger that hopefully is behind us. And how will Canada's economy fare in the months ahead? Who will lead the political charge here in Ontario? What can we expect in our nation's capital? Are the markets headed for strong growth, or should investors proceed with caution? That is what we are here to find out. Our expert panel will have a lot to say on these issues and more, I expect. Um, but before I bring them to the stage, I would like to encourage everyone in the audience today uh, to take advantage of the opportunity to ask a question of the panel, should you wish. We just ask that you fill it out on the question cards. They're alongside your prediction cards, uh, and just raise your hand and a volunteer will come collect them and bring them to the, to the front. Uh, and it is now my pleasure to pass the mantle to our moderator, Amanda Lang. Amanda will preside over what I'm sure is going to be a lively, thoughtful, and engaging discussion with some of this country's most respected business and political observers. Amanda, welcome. Thank you. The stage is yours. Thanks, Allison, and thank you all for being here. Uh, my thanks to uh, the National Post and Scotiabank and Ernst & Young for inviting me to be the moderator. Uh, we have, as you've heard, an esteemed group of panelists and one economist. Uh, <laughs> as a business journalist, I rely on economists uh, for perspective and, uh, and as a source of information. And if you're now feeling pity for me, that's the right response. Uh, economists, they say, uh, are a difficult group. In fact, you can ask six economists for an opinion about the same set of facts, and you'll get six different opinions. You'll get seven if one of them went to Harvard. <laughs> George Bernard Shaw said you could lay them all end to end, and economists would still never reach a conclusion. <laughs> I figure they're happy to get laid at all. A joke that really only works if there is an economist about to take the stage. <laughs> it would be wonderful if we could start today's forecast panel with last year's forecasts. So that's what I'm going to do. Uh, this is what Andrew said last year. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. We wouldn't do that to you because you wouldn't come back. Uh, but we did think that the right amount of time for a learned summary of all of the complexities in Canada and the US and Europe is five minutes. Seemed like about the right amount of time to us. We are going to be strict with time and I may need your help with that. You can take guesses on which panelist I'm most concerned about going over. <laughs> Perhaps in a single word. I'm going to uh, have to interrupt a little bit rudely and give uh, our panelists a, a 30 second warning. But at the time, Mark, I may need your help with a big round of applause to help them off the stage, sort of like those glamorous girls at the Oscars who just come and sweep the guests off. Uh, without further ado and uh, without much by way of introduction, I'm going to invite Terence Corcoran as our first panelist to the stage. Terry? started yet. <laughs> thank you very much and a happy uh, 2013 to everybody and thank you very much for being here for this annual event. Although before we get to the forecast I want to draw your attention to our contest, the one that Paul mentioned just before lunch. Now as Paul said your challenge is to uh, this year is to forecast the unemployment rate for the United States and Canada. It's a tough call, but it's not that tough. 
When you think about it, the range of options is very narrow. Now take the U.S. unemployment rate, now 7.8%. And as you can see on your contest cards, 7.8% is a pretty flat line leading up to that, give or take a few points. Now that rate is certain to come down over the next year, but it's unlikely to get to the 6.5% that uh, Ben Bernanke talked about as a target. So the range of possibilities is actually very small when it comes to picking the rate, maybe somewhere between 6.8% and 7.4%, let's say. So there might be six numbers in all this room that'll be the right number. Now the same is true for the Canadian unemployment rate. It'll go lower, maybe, what, 6.3%, something like that. Now, what this means is that the odds of getting these two numbers right, by my calculation, works out to be about 1 in 50, maybe less. There are a 1,000 people in this room. You don't need to be a professional gambler to realize that the chances could easily be that more than 20 winners are in this room. That's if everybody participated. Now, I feel obligated to point this out because Paul Godfrey is also chairman of the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation. <laughs> or as the, as the Toronto Star puts it, Paul is Ontario's gambling czar. And he wants to put a casino right, right in here somewhere, I think. Anyway, so I thought, Paul, that, I should be, that you should be aware in this contest that the odds are stacked against the house. And you're the house. Now, fortunately, though, you will notice that there uh, is no specific prize identified with this year's contest, which is a relief. Now, back in the days when Conrad ran the post, we would have, we would have given away maybe free iPads to every winner, no matter how many of them there were. But the newspaper business isn't what it used to be. Uh, and we'll just have to leave the prize up to the National Post's brilliant promotions department to wiggle out of this come next year. As of now, however, the editorial department is washing its hands of the whole affair. <laughs> now, if I were entering the contest, though, I would pick a number for the U.S. unemployment rate of maybe 7.1%, uh, and that's just a guess, really, but it's based on uh, the observation that the U.S. economic and political situation is a bit of a shambles. Now, last year, you may recall, Time magazine named the Occupy Movement this was last year for 2011, the Occupy movement as one of the newsmakers of the year for 2011. Now, I predicted then that the Occupy movement would be dead within a year, and I was right. But I was wrong on the reason. I thought the United States would reject Occupy Wall Street and install Mitt Romney as President of the United States. Instead, Time Magazine's newsmaker for 2012 is President, or was President, Obama. The Occupy movement is dead, but only because it is superfluous and unnecessary. The White House is already occupied by a President who more or less endorses most or much of the Occupy movement's agenda. We've seen the U.S. economic plan for the last four years, and it's the same plan for the next four years. It's a six-point plan. Increase government spending, run big deficits, expand the national debt, raise taxes and attack high-income earners, increase regulation of business and financial markets, and keep interest rates as low as possible for as long as possible and print as much money as possible and hope it all works out. Now, The Economist magazine accurately described the U.S. economic and political situation, in my view, over the weekend. Washington is set to become the new Brussels, Brussels on the Potomac. America is the new Europe, a place where spending never falls, deficits are epidemic, national debt keeps growing, and taxes stifle growth. Now, I see some new taxes coming in the U.S., including a, a probability, I think, of an energy or a carbon tax, at least something that will be looked to be imposed over the longer term. The new energy tax would serve as a partial cover for President Obama approval uh, of the Keystone XL pipeline, which should come before the middle of this year. Through all this, with the likely Keystone go-ahead, Canada is said to be sitting pretty, and we are to some degree with the federal government that is somewhat more prudent. 
but we also have provinces that are dangerously running on empty. If Washington risks becoming Brussels on the Potomac, Toronto is set to become Athens by the lake. And finally, uh, last year I expressed optimism that the forces of capitalism were on the rise and the government uh, power was uh, it, perhaps in retreat, uh, declining authenticity and authority of the left. The Occupy movement is failing. I was wrong. The opposite now seems to be true. The, for, the world, in fact, has gone a little bit crazy. In France, actor Gérard Depardieu has taken out Russian citizenship to escape high taxes in France. As somebody tweeted yesterday, it takes a really good actor to describe Russia as a great democracy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Just one final prediction. Mayor Rob Ford, I think, will win his court case and will still be mayor a year from now. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to now uh, invite uh, Warren Justin to the stage. Uh, thanks, Amanda, for reducing people's expectations about what I'm going to be delivering in the next uh, five minutes or so. I'm going to be doing a detailed uh, discussion of the European debt crisis, the fiscal cliff, uh, what's happening in China. I don't think I have enough time to talk about the Toronto housing market unless we go to six or seven, and I know that's not going to happen. But going back to Amanda's uh, initial point about uh, what economists are good for, incre increasingly I think economists are telling stories rather than giving forecasts because the world is changing pretty dramatically. And I think the things that catch forecasts out are the structural shifts that we're seeing, the fact that we've got a new world rising, particularly in the emerging world, and a new paradigm that has emerged. Uh, China is no longer the sole supplier of low-cost uh, flat-screen TVs and, uh, and, uh, pr and commodities that seem to go down year after year. They have become the market, as many other emerging countries have. And taking China alone, they've accounted for 60% of new car sales since the turn of the millennium. They produce one-quarter of the world's cars, and they are doubling production over the next three to four years. They are a dominant market for luxury goods in the world now. We'll soon be moving into number one position. And this year, Chinese tourists will outspend Americans and Germans who have been at the top of the ranks in terms of global big spenders for as far as the eye can see. So this truly is a new world. And as we read in the Financial Post and other places, they are also becoming big buyers globally. With $3.2 trillion of foreign exchange reserves, expect more. This is truly a new world. The opportunity is in the new market. Another thing that has tended to change in terms of uh, an environment that affects dramatically economic forecasts is economists love to talk about economic or financial risks when political risk has become a big deal. Pipeline approval in the U.S. or perhaps out to the West Coast or the Iranian nuclear program can affect things very materially. They can affect price of oil, or sorry, gas at the pumps. And don't forget technology. We used to be forecasting fearlessly five to seven years ago that natural gas was headed to eight to ten dollars per MCF. It's currently around three to three and a half and has been as high as four. What's the big deal? Well, fracking, horizontal drilling. Technology has changed the name of the game in energy and may well affect oil in the same way. Adding in the demographics, the aging population and the like, and it's no wonder forecasters or economists have become much more in the storyteller category than in the true forecast category going forward. That said, what are my fearless forecasts going forward? Well, one is that we will be talking about the European debt situation five years from now. It will morph into something else, inevitably. It will morph as deals are made, but it is much more than an economic issue, Europe is in recession, or a fiscal or financial issue, and those are deeply uh, troubling in some ways. It is also a political issue and a social issue, where governments and distressed economies have fallen because of problems associated with the debt leverage. And youth unemployment rates in places like Greece and Spain are over 50%, in Italy 30%. These are very difficult issues to deal with and will be around for some time. Compared to what's happening there, the U.S. is doing very, very well. We've just gone through the fiscal cliff, and stay tuned. We will be talking about fiscal reform in the U.S. through this year and next. We finally got the deficit below a trillion dollars after four years, 
but it's still got a long way to go, and uh, Congress has been quite dysfunctional in recent years. But the reality is the housing market has improved, consumer spending is going up, and that economy should grow, even with these problems, somewhere on the order of 2%. Surprisingly, the U.S. can lead the G7 in growth performance with only 2%. Winning the growth sweepstakes amongst those economies is not a hard race to win. China is having a bad year. It had a bad year over the last year. Its growth fell below 8%. Defining bad as 8% in China is relative to 25-year growth trend of 10%. But the important point here is 8% growth compared to 2% in North America or no growth at all in Europe and very low growth in Japan means that the emerging world will increasingly become more important in a broad array of goods and services globally. This is the reality of the balance of this decade. The fiscal cliff debate, well, as I said, it's going to go on for some time, and it is going to create high anxiety in financial markets, a lot of volatility. And we will have volatility created by the European debt situation as well. But at the same time, interest rates stay very low. Printing money or, uh, or uh, the fact that uh, global investors are concerned about an uncertain environment keep bond yields low, and effectively, I think that is going to be the story well into 2014. It is important to realize that when central banks are keeping interest rates low, that they are helping out borrowers, providing a gift in terms of low interest rates, but they may well be sowing the seeds of problems for investors, for pension funds, and for people that are nearly retired. So out of this solution, so-called solution, we may well find out problems uh, coming. Finally, because I've got about 15 seconds left, let's turn to Canada. We will be underperforming the U.S. because we are not playing catch-up. The U.S. is hiring more. The housing market is recovering. Here we may have a minor housing park at correction. Uh, commodity prices have come down. But in terms of levels, we've got the strongest financial system in the world, a better fiscal situation than many countries around the world. Uh, we have a number of things that effectively put us in a very enviable spot. The governor of the Bank of Canada is leaving for, uh, for England. It's a much more interesting job. It's been boring in Canada because we've been hitting our fiscal targets since the early 1990s. He does not have a financial system to reform simply because ours is working very well. But is that regime change going to lead to change in policy? Absolutely not. The depth of management at the Bank of Canada is very solid, and I think we will see the Bank of Canada continuing on course with the same policy for some time. And finally, the fearless forecast on the Canadian dollar, flat to up in the near term. Uh, but for going forward, longer term, I think we're getting very, very near a peak. We may well see the currency uh, reach its crescendo sometime over the next year and come down a little bit as we find the U.S. and other economies beginning to perform a little better. Thank you very much. Before we bring up our next um, panelists, I just want to remind you all that on your table are cards for questions, and uh, that should be to you at least the most interesting part of this event, uh, which is when we take your questions for our panelists. The time we have for those questions is entirely dependent on the next three speakers. The first two were um, somewhat over time, uh, and it remains to be seen whether Andrew Coyne and Diane Francis get any time at all. <laughs> Please now welcome Conrad Black. Thank you very much, Amanda. Thank you all for, for coming here. I don't want to put on the airs of the convener. I am just a guest like all of you, but I would be remiss if I did not say how delighted and gratified I am to see four great figures of the public life of this country, whom it is my distinction to be able to say, taken together, have been friends of mine for a total of over 100 years the former Prime Minister John Turner, the 35-year mayor of Mississauga, Hazel McCallion, the former finance minister Donald McDonald, and a possible future mayor of the city, Sarah Thompson. I'm honored to have you all here. <laughs> I'm not accustomed to speaking with quite these constraints, but I'll give it my best try. <laughs> As will shortly be evident to you, I have not, in fact, planned my remarks, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working hard on spontaneity here. 
Um, I have to dissent from some of the things that have already been said. Uh, and my prediction is essentially a debunking of almost all major economies except Germany, Canada, and Australia. I do not agree with the previous speaker that the United States deficit is below a trillion dollars this year. I do not see that at all. I think the so-called avoidance of the cliff that we have seen is a fraud, essentially. And uh, I call your attention, all of you, to the implications of the fact that in 232 years of American history, from 1776 to the inauguration of the current president, the accumulated debt of the United States was $10 trillion. Four years later, it is $16 trillion. This in a country whose M2 money supply at the day of inauguration of President Obama was $900 million. And this debt is also a fraud. It's a shell game. It isn't really debt. Approximately 70% of the Treasury sales are taken up, as many of you would know, by the 100% subsidiary of the U.S. Treasury, the Federal Reserve, clicking across, as any of us might do, sending any other person here an email, the issuance of notes to pay for these bonds. It is essentially debt that has all of the characteristics of an increase in the money supply. And the, the only reason that the inflationary forces have not got completely out of control is the suppression of the interest rate and the fact that too many industries are still too tanked out to allow the overall CPI index to rise the way it normally would. You have double-digit inflation in, for example, milk and most categories of food, but the housing industry, to take one example, has been so depressed that it's helped to keep the average down. I don't agree that U.S. unemployment is going to go down significantly, and I don't agree that the U.S. rate of inflation will not rise appreciably. The fact is, uh, this can't go on. I'm not a person who has a Mother Hubbard view or a, a Mr. Macabre view of balancing the budget. It never bothered me when Reagan was running deficits. Uh, quite shortly, the deficit started to come down, and as a percentage of the GDP, it, it started to come down. Uh, there was not a serious problem in emergencies before our time, like World War II. You had 10% of the population in the armed forces, wage and price controls, almost no consumer goods. And as soon as the war ended, radical measures were taken to reduce the debt successfully, and after the Civil War, the same. But um, in this case, they're just piling on the debt. General George Washington when he retired as commander of the Continental Army and when he convened the Constitutional Convention and when he was inaugurated as the first president and when he retired as the first president, on all of those occasions said the raison d'etre of the revolution was to create a country where the citizens had rights that would be protected by an indissoluble union, an adequately strong military defense, and a stable and reliable treasury and currency. And uh, the first two have been achieved, certainly, but this, the last one, in my opinion, is in deep peril. And it is aggravated by the fact that in that society, as in much of the West, we have become uh, disdainful, implicitly, of value-creating work, and particularly if it involves wearing blue overalls and carrying a metal lunch pail. The United States has over 40 cities with a metropolitan population greater than a million, where the downtown centers are forests of skyscrapers filled with highly trained, highly motivated, ingenious people who don't add value to anything. There are too many lawyers, too many consultants, and too many people who don't add any value. And we are not going to get the kind of growth rates we had in the post-war era until we reorient these economies towards actual value creation and not just the velocity of money. What did you say? 30 seconds. 30 seconds. You've got it, Amanda. <laughs> China has uh, 600 million people who live as they did 3,000 years ago, and you can't believe one figure they utter or anything they say, other than there is no doubt that it, as a developing economy story, it's a magnificent story, but it's still a totalitarian government and a largely command economy. Uh, Germany, my prediction for Germany is that it will gradually lead a sort of strong currency group consisting of the Poles, Czechs, Scandinavians, <laughs> Dutch, Austrians, and themselves 
as others fall away and move towards Europe being uh, a free market, but not only with one currency, or a fewer in the euro. And as for France, its pretensions to be a great power after all these centuries are almost at an end, having elevated a president who, as I said in your television program, Amanda, is the most improbable leader of many candidates that that country has ever had, not excluding that immortal trio, Louis the Fat, Louis the Bald, and Louis the Simple. <laughs> if my time is over, I think Canada will do fine. I don't think the figures on the prediction sheet there are going to change very much. The United States is heading for a real cliff, and it doesn't have a parachute. And, and Europe is a shambles, but Germany will rise. Merkel is Bismarck in drag, and she will conquer with benignity. <laughs> she will do... She will do with prudence and goodwill what even Bismarck, whom, as John Turner would know, Pius IX described as Satan in a helmet, <laughs> could not achieve with, with force and the threat of force. Thank you very much. And that was Conrad being upbeat. Uh, now please join uh, me in welcoming Andrew Coyne. Yeah, yeah, put me on after Conrad. Thanks a lot. Uh, I am once again here under false pretenses, as I am every year. Uh, I tell the organizers every year I am not in the predictions business. I am in the finger-pointing, backbiting, and recrimination business. Uh, I am at best able to half remember the past, let alone predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen in the year to come. Neither do the rest of the frauds on this platform, <laughs> except Warren Jeston. Warren knows, listen to Warren. But the rest of us, I think, are basically hazarding guesses. Nevertheless, I will try in my allotted four and a half minutes uh, to give a, a quick survey of the political landscape and perhaps hazard a hypothesis or two. Uh, the Conservatives, first of all, um, what we saw in the last year was a party that was finally starting to acquire a solidified agenda after this stumbling around during the minority years, and in the first six months of their majority, more or less sort of cleaning up some of the mess that they had still not uh, dealt with. But what you saw in the past 12 months, ever since the Prime Minister's Davos speech, was a fairly focused agenda on dealing particularly with the aging of the population and the demographic challenge and fiscal challenge that that represents of higher costs and fewer workers. And a number of the initiatives over the last year were essentially could be grouped under that rubric, uh, whether you're talking about the reforms to public pensions, to the OAS, uh, to uh, the earlier in, the, in December of, of the previous year, the health care transfers uh, cuts, the massive reforms to immigration directed at, among other things, improving labor supply, uh, include, also the changes in EI, the same idea of, of we, we, we're going to need every available uh, person hour of work uh, in the years to come, and we really can't afford uh, uh, to, to be wasting any. Uh, the continued emphasis on tax cuts, the far-reaching free trade agenda, uh, multiple simultaneous negotiations with Europe, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with Japan, with India, uh, it really is quite extraordinary. Uh, the one, I think, clunker in the mix that really doesn't fit with that agenda, in my opinion, was the next end decision. Uh, we are going to need uh, abundance of foreign capital in the years to come as well, and it seems to me ill behooves us to be uh, cutting off uh, that particular supply when it's available to us. What are we going to see in the next year to come? I think, as many people would say, that the pipelines question is going to be uh, continue to, to bedevil this government. Uh, make no mistake, they are determined to get the next end, let's say the, the, uh, the Northern Gateway pipeline through, uh, but they're going to find, among other things, that the uh, increasing uh, saliency of the aboriginal, aboriginal issue, as we've been seeing in recent weeks, is going to make that, uh, if, if they didn't already have problems getting that pipeline through, is going to continue to be uh, important to them. I think you're going to, this will be the litmus test year as to whether they're going to start to, to deliver on some of these free trade agreements that they've been negotiating. There are some who are skeptical of that, but I think, certainly I think the European agreement looks like it's very close to being uh, uh, brought through. There's one tantalizing it. There's, you do get some rumblings that perhaps in finance they're getting interested in another round of tax reform. And I could imagine the next year or two that that would be a good legacy thing for Jim Flaherty to go out on. 
as, as a major achievement. So we'll see whether the next year or two that that uh, suspicion proves out. So they've become, as I say, that if the knock on them was that they never had an agenda before, that it was hidden, I think that's uh, harder to say now. It's just the way they go about it, of course, that remains uh, contentious. Uh, this uh, habit of pushing things through in massive omnibus bills. But they're running up against the limits of that kind of bullying approach. As I say, if they have a sliver of a chance of getting Northern Gateway through, they're going to have to depend on the NEB delivering a very positive report, and even then it's going to be a wing and a prayer. Big year, of course, for the Liberals. They are not just picking a leader. They are deciding who they are, or more accurately, why they are. What the Liberals really have to do is to ask themselves, why are we still in the Liberal Party? Why can't we be New Democrats? Why can't we be Conservatives? If they can't answer that question, they're in a more of a trouble than even they know. So in my opinion, I think this is a, an opportunity for them to harden up the brand, if you will. They're in a very different situation than they've ever been before. They're in an unusual situation as a third party that is a centrist party by nature. Uh, most times third parties are more to, the, to one end or the other and have that identity and that brand that can carry them through thin times. The Liberals now have to reinvent the centre. They have to find a raison d'etre that is compelling enough to them and to supporters that they can harden up, as I say, a 20%, even if it's only 20% of support in the short term, that can carry them through what will be, I still think, uh, thin times in the years ahead. If they go for the shortcut, if they try to, you know, lurch for power, it's beyond their grasp, frankly. I don't see any of the candidates that are running for leader being the kind that can deliver that power. What they should be doing is trying to find a good third-party leader and wait and build for the future. If I can uh, essay a homely analogy, the Liberals are like a hockey team uh, that has won several Stanley Cups in a row. But the last cup, they're winning it on 42-year veterans. Does this sound familiar? And then the veterans all retire, and you have to go back into the basement, and every hockey fan knows you have to hold on to your draft picks and play the long game. If you don't, if you're always playing for the Stanley Cup next year, you become like the Leafs. So the, the Liberals have to decide whether they like to spend 40 years in the wilderness or maybe five years in the wilderness. Lastly, I think we're coming close to just the NDP. If there's one party that has benefited from the stumbling around of the PQ and the very weak uh, victory of the PQ in Quebec, it is the NDP. If you Imagine if you had a very strong PQ government causing all sorts of mischief for the federal government. Uh, the, the party that would most be hurt by that would be NDP they'd, because they'd be doing that very difficult straddle between their... Uh, recently acquired base in Quebec and their need to, try to, to expand and grow in the rest of the country. They've been spared that, and as a result, I think they've actually had a pretty good year. They've been building a more professional image. They've had relatively few sort of bozo eruptions from some of their backbenchers. Uh, Tom Mulcair has been able to keep his temper in check for the last year. Uh, but stay tuned. I'm not so sure that Mulcair is going to wear well uh, as a leader. Uh, that, that anger that people talk about is not so much the issue. It's where does the anger come from? And if I were the Tories, I'm sure they have done deep psychological profiles on him. Uh, as he comes under pressure and more scrutiny in the next year or two, it will be interesting to see how he holds up under that. So for the Tories, I guess the good news for them is I think you're going to see the two opposition parties, the two major opposition parties, continue to battle out with no clear victor, certainly in the year to come. Thank you very much. And Last but far from least, Diane Francis. So how much did these guys cut into my time? You have 30 seconds. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I was afraid of that. Okay, I'll get down to it. Um, I'm just going to talk about my scorecard from my uh, forecast last year. Uh, I was okay on oil, okay on the Canadian-U.S. dollar uh, combo. I did mention the fact that the Fed was going to tie interest rates to lower unemployment rates. I said financial markets would do okay. I was wrong on gold. That was wishful thinking. I'm a director of a gold mine company. I said 2,000 an ounce, and that didn't happen. And I think gold is going to remain pretty lackluster uh, because of the strength, the apparent strength of the U.S., uh, Conrad aside, of the U.S. economy and prospects going forward. Um, I thought the Obama-Romney thing would be closer. Um, I like Obama. I wanted him to win, but I didn't realize it would be a landslide. Uh, believe it or not, in the U.S. system, 4% difference is a landslide. Um, and I thought it was kind of ironic that while Romney talked about the 47% moochers on the Democratic side who would vote for anybody, he ended up with 47% of the vote. 
and uh, the president ended up with 51%, and then Romney got the moochers who like tax cuts. So um, that's how it breaks down. China handed over uh, power to a new leader. There was some concern about it. Uh, it went silent for a couple of weeks, but it looks like it's okay, and that's important for all of us. And my favorite story recently, and it was referred to, is, is uh, Depardieu, who has uh, become a new Russian. Um, I love this story uh, because uh, it actually is, I think he's the poster boy, or should we say billboard, um, the poster boy uh, for a, a movement that actually is going to undermine politics. It's already picked up speed. It is a huge trend underway, I would say an earthquake. And basically what it is, is it is the rise through the internet of the consumer citizen. When people have information about everything, I mean, who thought Russia would give you 12, 13% flat tax? But when people have information, they are jurisdiction shopping. And there's a couple of uh, pieces of information. To think that Depardieu would leave his cheeses and his lifestyle behind for tax reasons because he was upset with, with his government is, as I say, he is the billboard for the post-nationalist, post-nationalism era that we are entering into. I think nation states are going to have trouble hanging on to their citizens, their taxpayers, and their, their jurisdictions as well as their uh, raison d'etre. Uh, right now, and, and the citizen consumer was behind the Arab Spring. It was the transmission of information very rapidly, the ability to collaborate and coordinate activity. Um, right now, one in 28 people on the planet are living in countries they weren't born in. And a recent poll came out and said that 640 million more people would leave home if they could. We're talking about one out of seven people on the planet who don't like the country they live in. That, to me, is an earthquake in terms of political science going forward in the future. Now, talking to 2013, um, obviously, we see the ramifications, what I call, what I've labeled the great, the great markdown uh, of transfer of wealth from west to east. We are hobbled with debts, and we are hobbled with demographic problems. The east is rising, the east meaning, you know, obviously all the emerging nations, east, east north, south. And it's a zero-sum game. Uh, and so they are gaining a lifestyle. They have sailed through the recessions, and their living standards are rising at different rates. We are in a G3 world. We have the United States, we have the European Union, and we have China. That is the G3 world. And, you know, Europe is evolving, muddling through, kicking the can down the road, as the Americans are doing, because they are all caught in the political impossibility of trying to dampen expectations because people are into a great markdown on living standards going forward. Um, the United States of Germany, I call it. Uh, Germany is running the show, should run the show. They know how to do bankruptcy and work out. That's what they're doing, and they're going to remain. I think it's the European Union is going to remain uh, together, united, despite some of the backbenchers in Britain uh, talking about being about a referendum to leave. Um, the United States is going to continue to do what Europe does, and that is kick the can down. And I think the United States has a whole ton of things going for it, uh, contrary to my friend Conrad's opinion that no other place in the world has, namely Silicon Valley and the reinvention of the world, technologically speaking. What is going on in life sciences and biology and in technology is absolutely breathtaking. And this is a shameless commercial. It will be the book after the next one I have coming out this spring. But what they have going down there is, uh, is no one can replicate and no one uh, will. Um, and that is a huge engine of, of economic growth. The GDP of the Silicon Valley area is probably bigger than Canada's and has many Canadians there. Uh, the Chinese engine of growth, may it continue. Uh, if it destabilizes, the whole region is in trouble. And I think the other significant things in 2013 is the Basel III arrangement, which is going to loosen money for forevermore, which will give the politicians in every country wiggle room to give away and print money and sort of ease the burden. I think uh, the Ontario and Quebec debt situations are something of great concern and should be to all Canadians. This is the year that they will cross over and have the same collective debt as our federal government, and that's just not 
that's just not on. Uh, that is going to make their, their decline within Confederation economically more rapid than it already has been. I think Keystone will be uh, approved by the Americans, and, but it's a good news, bad news. The good news is it'll be approved. The bad news is that I think it'll be mostly filled with light oil from North Dakota where they're fracking oil there and not as much from the oil sands as we would have hoped. So again, we have the problem of the pipeline of the Pacific Coast. I don't see that ever happening, frankly, given the politics in BC. So that's about it. I've done it. Um, and um, as I say, uh, I think that it'll be a pretty uh, stable year and uh, with a couple of, of uh, blips. I think Mr. Trudeau, I don't know what Andrew thinks, I think Trudeau will probably get the nod and he'll be the custodian uh, leader for the Liberal Party. Thank you. All right, we, we haven't got a ton of time for um, a discussion here. So I, what I'd like to do is actually open it up. Um, I'd like any one of you to jump in on this, uh, or all of you if you like. Uh, why is Conrad wrong? <laughs> not, I'm not really joking. I mean, I'm uh, because uh, I'm interested Conrad, that you, you believe that Canada will muddle along, um, but have such a dire prediction for our single most important partner. Um, Only so for this year. I'm certainly not negative about the United States over time, and I want to make that point, Diane. I agree with what you said about Silicon Valley. Look, it's a magnificent country. There's no question of that. But, uh, but, uh, but it's made, it's had decades of misdirection, and you don't, you have to pay a price for that. There will be a reckoning, but it'll, it will deal with that, and it will renovate itself. I, I have no question of that, but I think it'll be a rough year for them, rough couple of years. Well, I think it's going to be more than a rough couple of years. I think this is a, this debt deficit spending situation is going to drag on for another decade uh, of constant battling over spending, over government policy, over debt, over deficits. Uh, and that struggle, uh, plus the regulatory bent of the governments, uh, of, of the Obama government, is going to bog the country down and create a form of, uh, uh, I mean, it's not going to go into recession, uh, I don't think, not that I'm an economist, uh, but they will just be muddling through. For, for a country like the United States to be muddling through is a tragedy and a, a devastating one for for the rest of the world, including Canada. Can I just say, it, it, it would be interesting for people to go see a wonderful movie out called Lincoln. And if you see that the, uh, the kind of uh, craziness that goes on in deal-making back in 1864 after a bloody civil war was fought to eliminate slavery and they couldn't even agree on an amendment to properly eliminate slavery, it really was an eye-opening uh, eye exercise to me. It was a backstory to U.S. history that I hadn't realized, and it's a magnificent, uh, a magnificent movie. So my point is that it's always gone on. Democracies are messy. The bigger and more complicated and more of a melting pot, the messier they are. And somehow the U.S. has done okay. Was it, uh, I think it was Adam Smith who said there, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation, uh, and the Americans are certainly testing that uh, hypothesis. But I agree with uh, Warren and I guess with Diane that I think in the short term the issues are not so severe. Uh, particularly because the housing market is starting to solidify, and that's the thing that's been really holding them back. The thing that's much more concerning to me is the long-term, again, the demographic challenge. Uh, Bill Robson, the City Howe Institute, has calculated the unfunded liability in, in Canada, represented by the demographic aging, is something on the order of $2.8 trillion. That's promises to pay that we don't have the first clue where we're going to get the money for. In the States, and again, Warren might correct me, I think the unfunded liability just in the Medicare program is something on the order of $40 trillion. Uh, leaving aside all the other programs. So they've got serious long-term issues to deal with. Uh, and to their credit, they are actually starting to talk about that in actually a more substantive way to some extent than we are. So uh, I'm relatively bullish that they'll figure it out. And I think we've got to talk about the U.S., not in monolithic terms, but uh, breaking down the components. There are many businesses that are going to do extremely well, well-positioned global firms. Uh, we've talked about technology and the like. The thing that worries me longer term is that the fiscal mess 
ends up creating a number of consequences that are going to be very difficult to deal with. One of them is going to be a further dramatic widening of income disparities, where more and more people are going to be left behind. And many of those will fall out of the middle class going down, particularly as pensions aren't there because low interest rates, of course, are not the friend of people saving for retirement. So the U.S. is a, is a study in contrasts of an engine in one part that is working very well and allowing the economy to go perhaps 2 to 3 percent, but many parts of the economy are actually uh, decaying and, and getting worse. And that's one of the challenges we have here, because if we are going to prosper as a nation, we have to bring everybody along. You cannot leave major segments of the population behind and expect social unrest to diminish. Can I say one more thing on this? Uh, I am, in my way, in fact, a residual pro-American. This isn't the issue here. but the. It is not a country that is in many respects now competitive. Diane was absolutely right that it's still the most technologically advanced country. And, and it does have the most productive workforce in the world. And it's, its success is without the slightest precedent or parallel in the history of the world. No sane person disputes any of that. But it does not have an education system that is in general competitive. The very best parts of it are very good. But as a system for the whole population, it is not competitive. And the results show that. Uh, it no longer attracts a particularly ambitious and uh, advantageous to the uh, to the country uh, to the country to which they're immigrating uh, immigration, and uh, it has a medical system, as we all know, that costs seven thousand dollars per capita against $3,000 in Canada, Australia, Britain, France, Germany, and Japan. And it's a magnificent system for 70% of the people, but a very inferior system for the other 30% for such a rich country. And uh, the manufacturing um, sector is still, I think, by a narrow margin, the largest in the world, but is almost entirely dependent on the very top end, uh, aerospace and so forth. And it is, it is for such a splendidly endowed country and with a a country with such an unbroken and, and unparalleled, uh, uh, unrivaled history of steady success over two centuries, it, it is in a very perilous condition, not a, not a peril of a collapse and uh, uh, these comparisons with empires that crumbled like Rome and so on are nonsense. There's no suggestion of that. But it is, a, a, as Terence said, it's a, it's a very dodgy, fuzzy picture for some years, and there's nothing wrong with America that leadership wouldn't, wouldn't put right, but the leadership isn't visible now in either party. We're just about at time. I want to ask the panelists um, briefly what they see as the biggest uh, positive potential for Canada in 2013. Don't sit back, Terrence. <laughs> I was trying to think. Uh, well, the, the, I, I think... Blah, blah, blah. Just picking one thing. I would pick, and people will hate me for this, I would pick the Conservative government in Ottawa, which seems to me to be relatively less prone than just about every other government in the world to doing crazy things. It's got uh, a series of uh, issues, the F-35, uh, but these are very small uh, uh, problems and to have to deal with for, for, for a country of Canada's size. So that would be my pick in a few minutes. All right. Warren? I think, think it's a multi-year uh, uh, positive, and that is uh, business, particularly small, medium-sized businesses, finding new markets, moving away from the traditional ones that are more challenging and finding new ones abroad. I think that is a trend that will accelerate and makes me very positive about the longer-term outlook. Conrad? Um, I'd like to agree with both of these speakers. I think that um, the most benign aspect of the international economy right now is this tremendous uh, move to economic growth in areas of the world that were for all their history until recently very chronically depressed, underdeveloped areas. Now there are 22 sub-Saharan African countries who have crossed the World Bank threshold to moderate income. Admittedly, it's a low threshold of $1,000 a year, but it's still great progress. And uh, where Canada had 85% of its foreign trade with the United States about 15 years ago, I believe that number is now down to about 75% and is expected to continue to decline, not because the United States isn't a big buyer of ours, but, uh, but because these other economies are coming on stream. And I think 
uh, you're absolutely right that, that uh, this is a very positive trend as we open up uh, more markets. And I, I do agree with uh, Terence on the political side. And specifically, I think that this view of Andrews, that the antics of the PQ government in Quebec are so amateurish and absurd that it's not really going to be an embarrassment to Malcare, I think that the government uh, can be, the federal government can be relied upon to play its political cards uh, astutely enough to hang around Malcare's head like a toilet seat is uh, a really obscene courtship of the separatists in Quebec, including importation of Quebec's repressive language laws into federal employment practices. All right. Andrew and Diane, you got about 30 seconds each. Well, uh, unfortunately, I'm just going to have to echo a lot. I, I do think the trade agenda, the, these multiple trade agreements, if they can pull it off, big if, is remarkable. Just take the Europe, uh, European agreement. If we get a, a free trade agreement with Europe, maybe only briefly, but for a time we will be the only advanced developed country with guaranteed access to both the United States and Europe. That's remarkable. If we also put, throw in, you know, these others into the mix, uh, we will be amongst the most free trading countries in the world. Uh, and that's not just beneficial in terms of our ex external relations, but also part and parcel of these agreements is forcing much-needed changes within this country. Would we ever get the provinces to agree to open up procurement if they weren't being forced to uh, by virtue of international trade agreements? No, we would not. So I think, uh, I think this is one of the most positive signs. Dan? I would say that you wanted this year... Yep. Sort of the best thing this year. I think the best thing this year is the American recovery. Yep. Uh, we are totally reliant upon them economically as a trading partner, and they like us, and that makes us the envy of the world. All right. Please join me in thanking our esteemed panelists today. And now please welcome Gord Raman, President-elect of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to say a few words. Thank you, Amanda. On behalf of the club, I'd like to thank you for presiding over a lively, thoughtful, and spirited discussion with our distinguished panel. And to each of our panelists, thank you for your perspectives, insights, and forecasts. They were intriguing, provocative, and certainly appreciated by all of us. Now, only time will tell who was accurate, or at least more accurate. As you pointed out, Canada has fared reasonably well during the recent volatile economic conditions that nearly crippled the European Union and has affected America's plans for recovery. Looking ahead, there is reason for optimism, both here and abroad. We must remember our collective economic interdependencies in the world and not forget the lessons of the past. So Amanda, our panelists, and especially Paul Godfrey and his team at the National Post, thank you all for kickstarting the club's new year with such rich and provocative discourse, and all the best for a prosperous 2013. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Gord, and a very big thank you again to our panelists for such an uh, interesting discussion and for sharing your forecast so willingly with us. Amanda, thank you also to you. Amanda has been a great friend of the Canadian Club, a great inspiration personally, and a wonderful Canadian. So thank you for keeping the conversation on track. I would also like to thank our event partner, the National Post, as well as our sponsors, Ernst & Young and Scotiabank. I hope everybody took good notes and will join us again in January 2014 to see how accurate today's forecasts were. And of course, you can find a copy of this and hold them to their word uh, with the podcast on iTunes. Now, this concludes our television programming, which will be available on Rogers TV in the days to come. Uh, we are grateful to Rogers and to 680 News for their continued coverage of Canadian club events. To learn more about the club and to, uh, to get tickets for upcoming events, please visit us at canadianclub.org. Thank you all very much for joining us. Best for the new year and hope to see you again soon. We are adjourned. Thank you.